Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Hello, Shedders, and welcome back to the podcast for Shedders, made in Australia and distributed all over the world for the love of shedding. Here's what we'll be talking about in this episode. On the tools, 3D printing. It's a hot topic, and we're dipping our toe in. You'll hear from two different Shedders, one in the Northern Territory and one in Victoria. Both these blokes are right into 3D printing, and they'll tell you how they use it and how to get started. Our Shedder in the spotlight is from the Gold Coast. He's got some fascinating projects underway and he's got a bit of dilemma too when it comes to one of those projects. Let's just say his good wife doesn't see things the same way he does when it comes to pride of place. Oh well we all know about that. We've come up with a list of top three tech tips for shedders especially useful if you're in lockdown. How well do you know your prostate? In Ask the Doc we've got you covered. It's quite a fascinating discussion we'll call Prostate 101. Don't miss it. A spot of fishing with Butch never goes astray. And with a bit of luck, that rogue shedder Rip Woodchip will give you a laugh. Rip's been looking in the mirror at his receding hairline. Wow, I had trouble even finding one at all. Let's get on with the podcast. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders. So shed all your cares and woes and listen in. All right, it's time for our Shedder in the Spotlight here on the Shed Wireless. And we're going to go and talk to Robert Nicholson uh, up in Ashmore on the Gold Coast. Hello, Robert. How are you? I'm good, thank you. This sounds quite intriguing, the little notes they've given me about you, Robert. You're, you're French polishing a grand piano. We'll actually start soon. I've got to get the grand out of, uh, out of storage. It's say a little one, say a five-footer. A baby grand, is that what they call yeah, it? Well, they call them babies, unless they're about less than about uh, six or six and a half, they call them baby grands. So. But this one's a genuine, you know, it's not the tiniest, they're about three, three and a half feet, but, you know, it's it's what they what the Americans used to call a parlour piano. Now, you obviously, you, you play? No, I don't, actually. It plays itself, thank you. Oh, a modern player piano. No, it's an old player piano. It's called an Ampico. Wow, I see. I've never heard of it. That's great. Yeah, no, American Piano Company. That's what it stands for, Ampico. Um, so, so they were like a like a player piano, except they also they played the touch as well. So they had extra coding for the touch. Ampico's premium pianist was Rachmaninoff, so he recorded about thirty rolls for them. So, what what sparked this interest in in something like this? What, how did how did this come about? I think it came about because of my love of well of, of music in general and i saw i saw something oh when i was about oh, 17 or 16 or something on a guy in sydney called dennis condon who collected these things so, and um, i just kept looking around and found a few people who who were interested so there's a sort of this whole area of automated musical instruments that was around from about oh, the 1880s up to well if you include music boxes earlier, up until about 1930s when radio killed it all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and video killed the radio star, yes, and on and on it goes. So so was there any mechanical work needed for this piano or was it okay? Oh, yeah, the, the, they take a lot of work. They're, they're essentially timber and, and leather and and, um, and a sort of cloth that's got a, a rubber backing on it to make it um, airproof. So they run like a like what we call a pianola, which is actually the trade name of another company. But, and, and so they work exactly the same way, except they have this very strange control system that sort of controls the levels. So, um, yeah, it was, it's, it was interesting. But, of course, they, they automated everything, um, even violins. Is this made of timber, the, the frame on this, or is it a metal? What the the piano? Oh, it's, a, it's a normal grand piano. They, they fitted the mechanism underneath the soundboard. Right, so, so it's, it's a modern, uh, modern as in. This particular one was built in 1927, which was getting fairly late in it. You know, the the, the peak was about 20, 1920. 
pretty much everyone made them include and Steinway had a lot of them as well. They were made they were actually called pianolas. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. I never I never realized that, that it was such a big thing back in the day. Now it's now, onto the French polishing side. Now, this I, I think I, I could I could look at something and say it's been French polished, but I have no idea how French polishing works. What's it entail? Well, traditional French polishing is actually just it's really simple. It's, it's there's virtually nothing to it. You know, I always tell people I only use genuine beetle spit because 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 French polish is no more than shellac. And shellac is, is a secretions of the lac beetle. They get it from up in India and, and Pakistan, and the lac beetle puts down all this stuff to hold its nests together, and they harvest it and turn it into shellac. Yeah. And, um, and all French polishing is is literally hundreds of layers of shellac put down very, very thin. And the only other thing you use is a little bit of oil to try and stop the, um, the uh, what they call the rubber, which is a cloth cloth-covered uh, piece of cotton waste that you rub over the top and put the shellac down with. And you just oil it in one part of it to try and stop it from sticking. So, because if it sticks, that 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 usually invokes bad words. <laughs> so where are you up to with the whole project? Oh, I haven't actually even started on the grand. I, I've actually been French polishing again since I was about 16. And in fact, at the moment, the only thing I'm French polishing is the base of a key I made for my wife's 21st birthday. So it was, um, the base was red cedar and, and the key was made. I, I turned it up and uh, cut it out with, out of brass, uh, so solid brass rod and and uh, quarter-inch brass plate. And so it actually it turned out pretty good, but it took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> now, as soon as we're talking about your wife, we've got to touch on the fact that she's not exactly crazy about your idea of putting this grand piano in your apartment. Yeah, no, she's not particularly very fond of the idea. But I keep telling her, well, you know, she was there when I bought it, so what can I say? Um, it had to come sometime. <laughs> it, 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 it's only a little one, so it, it, instead of... Um, you know, the bigger ones, you usually say something like it's like mark, parking a mini in your lounge room. Well, this one's like parking mm. a smart car in your lounge room. <laughs> You're not sounding very convincing, you know, Robert. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you can't gild the lily because you get beat up afterwards then. So, uh, you have a, a keen interest in, in old hand tools. Well, I just like hand tools i like to play with old hand tools because i like to see how they how they work if you were to get a bow saw i don't actually cover the things so much i just like to use them so some uh-huh. people look at them as a collectible i just like to try them out and see how the old the old craftsmen worked you know so i like wooden that is uh, planes made out of wood german jack planes and things like that and their workbenches. Right. And I like using hand tools more than power tools. It's just something, I don't know, a bit more involving, a bit more fun about about um, using a hand plane or a saw. But, you know, most people in the shed think I'm nuts, but there you go. Ah, well, now to each his own, I believe. There's not a problem there at all. And you have an old rare metal lathe. Ah, oh, yes, it's an old... Um, the Americans made this lathe that was just a small lathe that they that they were very fond of called the South Bend Nine, and it was everywhere. They used they put him in all the small um, ships in World War Two and everything like that just to do some running repairs. And this one was built in forty two, so she's getting on a bit. So um, I'm, I'm just sort of putting her up to work. I think the sh- well the shed wants to get rid of it and buy something better. Um, oh, well, such is life. But, um, but yeah, I, I like looking at these little machines, and they work beautifully uh, in their own way. They're not what you'd call uh, – they haven't got the modern safety features or any of those things, but, but yeah, they, they have the charm. And they were um, built to last, things of that, of that era. Well, yeah, it wasn't the world's greatest lathe, but, yeah, look, it survived uh, 80 oh, – was it almost 80 years now – and, and the, it's, it's clearly being shown that someone else at least once has rebuilt it because uh, they've uh, flattened the, um, the worn wear in the beds and to the point where they actually hand-scraped it down to being accurate to within about a tenth of a thousandth of an inch, which is, which is dedication for, for a small um, 
fairly cheap way, you know. This is, this yeah. is a lot of work. Ooh. Yeah. Now you've uh, you've done the um, grain nomad thing. You've uh, you've travelled around Australia. Um, that must have been a wonderful uh, wonderful time. Oh, 12, 12 and a half years we were on the road. Um, wow. And and you know it was only a little motorhome. It's a, a seven meter motorhome, twenty three feet. The, the ones that you use that you hire usually that can be driven on a car license. So. Uh, and we did that, well, obviously, because it made it easier. You could try it on a car license. Um, and you know, marriage survived 12 years, cooped up seven meters. Well, you know, usually we lived outside, but you know, if the weather was bad, you were cooped up inside this little box. So you get out and, and under the awning and, and cook in the middle of the rain and everything because you didn't want to smell up the inside of the motorhome. So it was great. But the, I suppose in the end, you know, it's, it, it would be, sound a bit strange but in the end, we realised it was time to quit because we'd go along and we'd, we'd park beside or even camp beside what was really a wonderful thing. And we'd just, we, we'd just say, jab, just another beach. <laughs> so when you can say, just another beach, yeah. then you know you're in trouble. Yeah, sounds like, you're, uh, sounds like you've had enough. Well, yeah, all the little towns started to look the same, and and yeah. all the beaches started to look the same. To tell you the truth, so um, yeah, and so we thought maybe time to do something else. And we were planning a big overseas trip, and then uh-huh. well, COVID came along, so we bought here at the Gold Coast instead. Yep. No, I, well, I'm sure when you do go overseas, uh, Robert, I'm sure that when you when you are over there, you'll be uh, you'll be longing for just another beach. Because one thing that hits me every time I go overseas, I can't wait to come back. <laughs> yeah, well, in my case, it's probably take me six months to get out of looking at all the museums in London because there's so many of them. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, I hear you're uh, interested in uh, 3D printing. Well, i just interested in, in starting 3D printing, actually. Uh, even though I used to be a, a professional electrical engineer, um, I'm a bit of a a Luddite in some areas and and 3D printing is one of them. So I thought I I should try and um, get a little up to date on these things. I haven't actually done so yet. uh, And the shed's looking at getting a CNC machine. I'm not sure they understand um, how much works in actually learning how to use one of those, but I'll learn. Well, uh, I'm sure they will. And, uh, And Robert... You stay tuned because later on in this show we're going to be having a chat to a couple of fellas and we're talking all about 3D printers and uh, CNC routers and blah, 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 all the things that I don't understand either. Robert Nicholson from Ashmore Shed on the Gold Coast, thanks very much for all of your input today on the Shed Wireless. Thanks very much, John. On the Tools, on the Shed Wireless, with John Paul Young. On the tools this episode, we're going to delve into 3D printing. I know this is a really hot topic among the shedders everywhere, home shedders as well as men's shed or community shedders. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know much about it, but I'm about to learn because these two blokes you're about to hear from are right into it. Uh, They're from very different parts of Australia too, so it's going to be interesting to dial them both up and have a sort of roundtable discussion, more of a triangular discussion about 3D printing. A big welcome to John Price from Catherine in the Northern Territory. Hi, John. G'day. And also Robert Larson from Croydon's Men's Shed in Victoria. Hi, Robert. Good afternoon. Well, let's start with you, John. Uh, tell us about you and your interest in uh, in shedding. Um, I moved to Catherine about three years ago, and um, Catherine being a small country town, I knew you had to get involved in the community to actually enjoy the town. Yeah. So what was your background, John? So my background, I've basically been in electronics for over 30 years. Joined joined the Air Force when I was um, in 1983. Did 15 years working on Hornet. Got out and worked as a tech with the ABC for three years. And uh, currently I've been three years in uh, Catherine here working at the base at Tyndall on the Hornet simulator. Aha! I thought as soon as you mentioned Air Force, and I thought Catherine, I thought Tyndall, and I thought there must be a connection. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, I had a big break of over twenty years uh, with no no defence, no avionics. Now uh, your turn, Robert. Where did you where did you uh, start with? What was your background first? 
I worked for Autodesk, which is uh, a CAD computer-aided design software company. And as part of that, I was uh, a research engineer in plastics. So, uh, and with Autodesk, they did a lot of simulation software. So approximately 2005, uh, they started with a, a flow simulation program. So that, like a wind, uh, the wind tunnel simulation that they use in race cars nowadays. Uh, and as part of that, we bought um, a little 3D printer to make models to put into a, a wind tunnel. We actually used the wind tunnel at uh, RMIT um, in the northern suburbs. And through that, you know, I, I was given the job of looking after the, the little 3D printer. And, uh, yeah, I, I just got hooked from then. All right. So, Robert, exactly just for, for those who don't know, what is a 3D printer? What does it do? The simplest way that I tell people a 3D printer is like icing a cake. You've got a funnel, uh, a cloth funnel full of icing, and you squeeze it out through the nozzle and build up uh, whatever you want. You, if it's icing, you've, you're usually writing something on a cake. So you're, you're building it up in little lines and just building it up from that. Right. I mean, I, I've actually I've recently seen that they've got this humongous machine that they're using to, um, to simulate a, an existence on Mars, for example. And that's the sort of thing they're using, this, this great big machine that just pumps this stuff up and just layers and layers and layers uh, until it looks like a giant log cabin. Yeah, well, 3D printing nowadays, you can print, depending on uh, the machine, you've, you know, naturally, you can print anything from plastic, concrete. I actually read something a couple of months ago they're actually using wood fiber to print and metals or you know, everything, titanium, aluminium, ordinary steel, everything. Yeah, it's a very exciting concept indeed. John, what sort of stuff do you like doing with the 3D just, print? Just to follow on from what Robert was saying, the things that got me into all this was you know, new technology, or I'm getting left behind with you know, some of the technology, and you hear all these stories of what they're actually 3D printing up at charles darwin university up in darwin they've actually got a 3d printer that can do metal and they're doing car parts and they were saying that they might be able to do bits that are um, suitable for aviation you know i'm saying where they're 3d printed houses they do the walls and everything and then finish it off with standard roofs uh it's phenomenal what they do and, and it was that sort of thing that got me into 3d printing you know yeah, well, it certainly sounds exciting, and it certainly sounds the way of the future. I mean, I know the Australian Men's Shed Association have been getting emails about this topic, asking us to cover it. So it's pretty clear there's a lot of interest out there. For, for example, I'll share this note from Jeff White on the Shed Online, and uh, he says, here at the Bayside New South Wales Men's Shed in Kaima, New South Wales, we have a CNC 6040 router, which has kept very, very busy carving patterns and text on bowls, signs, cutting boards, beehive boxes, making toys of various sorts. It's our second CNC router, the first being a CNC 3020 we bought as a trial. We use CAMBAM. Now, all this is hieroglyphics to me, but I'm sure you'll know. Uh, we use CAMBAM, a 2.5D program from the UK for creating geometry and producing G-code. Then Mac 3 for post-processing and the machine's on-screen control panel. CAMBAM has only limited ability to prepare 3D geometry but can import 3D files from other applications, for example, AutoCAD. From time to time, members suggest progressing to 3D printing or laser cutting, but we have not taken that step yet. Cheers from Jeff White from uh, Kai Ema. Now, where do you recommend starting if you're new to this? Robert, maybe this is one for you, given you used to work in the in this industry. Where would you start? When I, uh, the first 3D printer that we bought at work was called a MakerBot. And I've actually, you know, when I retired six years ago, 
uh, I bought a MakerBot clone. Now, the MakerBot itself was about $5,000 back then. Six years ago, I bought the clone, which is out of China, uh, for about $1,000. And I've not looked back since. In fact, I was I was doing making stuff yesterday. You know, virtually every other day, um, I'm making something. Uh, so it, you can you can get a 3D printer now, a bottom of the range from like five hundred dollars, uh, and it'll it'll do the job. You've it's not plug and play, as John will probably uh, back me up on that. You've got to um, mother it a little bit. See my my very first 3D printer was a, a cheap Chinese thing for $240 off one of those Chinese stores. And I got it and I assembled it, you know, bought it as a kit. I got some reasonable prints out of it. Spend half an hour fiddling with it before I could actually print. You know, you'd have to balance the bed or level the bed and a few little things needed tuning. But then I went to spend a bit more money. I spent $1,500 on a Prusa. Yeah, I bought that for 1500 and I've... I just about never calibrate it, you know, and just get on there and print it. And it's just so much just plug and play, put it, put the SD card in and print. Wow, it sounds like we're heading for science fiction time when uh, one of these CD printers uh, is uh, one day going to make itself. Well, they've actually got you – can, <laughs> you can actually go and look up um, parts for 3D printers just by the metal – metal bits and the hot end, and actually make your own. You know, the <laughs> parts are out there to download. <laughs> That's fantastic. So why do you think it's a great hobby? What are the possibilities? Why well, I mean, we just spoke of the possibilities. The thing could probably make itself. Well, mine was just the, the, the fact that, oh, look, I can make things. And I was making just little toys and little – but then there was one – it was like a spinning top that you didn't touch, but you blew on it and you, your air with a turbine made it spin. My wife, who's a special ed teacher, said, can you make me a few of those for school? So she's taken them to school. Wonderful, wonderful indeed. Well, Robert, uh, what do you think about about all of this stuff? Are you, um, What's your latest project? Uh, just to, Well, just to step back a moment, about 10 years ago, the car company called Koenigsegg, I don't know if you've heard of them, they, they make a, a supercar. I think they're based in Sweden, I'm not sure. But about 10 years ago, they designed a car and the turbo that fitted on that, you you couldn't physically make it. So 10 years ago, they 3D printed the turbo and that was fitted on the car and used in production. Uh, but my latest project, I, I've got a, a, a motor, an old motorbike and I'm just in the process of making a, a mount that fits on the motorbike that you know the, the foam will slide into and and then fasten onto the the motorbike handlebars yeah because I, I i do the design as well I, I use a program called fusion 360 uh, which is an autocad product which is free for home use and i i design my own parts and um and, and 3d print them it's it's just fascinating stuff, and I'm uh, you know I'm sure this is uh, the beginning of something that's going to be really really big in the future, and it's it's wonderful that uh, that you guys are involved in it, and uh, and I, I think uh, all of the shedders around the world would be right into uh, getting getting into three D printing. It sounds like it's definitely the way of the future. I want to thank you very much, guys. Uh, thanks, John, and thanks uh, thanks Robert Robert from Croydon and uh, John all the way from Catherine. And uh, say good day to everybody out there for us. Thanks very much, guys. The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association across Australia and around the world. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Forgive my directness, but how well do you know your prostate? Every September is Prostate Awareness Month, so take a deep breath and relax because we're going to ask the doc. Sort of like Prostate 101. For instance, did you know that your prostate is about the size of a walnut? 
And do you know why it's important in the scheme of things? This edition of Ask the Doc was originally featured in Season 2 of The Shed Wireless, and my mate Aaron Carney does a great job of quizzing our resident doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin, from Healthy Mail, about that walnut-sized feature of your anatomy. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. Today we are going to boldly go where not every radio discussion would boldly go, and we're going to tackle, for want of a better word, the prostate, the walnut, the jelly bean. Yes, prostate for dummies, prostate 101. I got one, you got one. What is it, Rob? Oh, well, the prostates are a little gland about the size of a walnut that sits beneath the bladder and around the urethra, around the urinary tube. And... Uh, its, its role, it seems to be to produce fluid that nurtures and supports the sperm on their way. Uh, so it's part of the reproductive process. Uh, apart from uh, that role, it doesn't seem to have any other function. But uh, due to its location, it can certainly cause us men some concern when things go wrong with it. And things do go wrong, don't they? Yes, they, they do. And I think uh, as you get older, it's inevitable that the prostate grows. Uh, it always grows with men uh, as they age, and sometimes it grows to a degree where it can uh, uh, make uh, passing urine more difficult. Uh, it can cause some irritation uh, and some symptoms that go with uh, uh, like wanting to void, uh, having to uh, trouble stopping and starting, those sorts of things. So there's the that's the benign growth that's inevitable with age. Some men have problems from it that, that upset them. Others, it just doesn't matter. Why does it grow? Well, it just grows as part of aging in men. It's, it's, its growth is driven by testosterone and it's inevitable. Like ears and nose hair, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, no, like ear hair, yeah. What's the point? I don't know. But, uh, but it does grow. And as I say, sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't matter. If it matters, it can, it can be... Uh, the subject of discussion with your doctor, uh, those symptoms of uh, difficulty starting and stopping and uh, poor urinary flow. Uh, there's a lot that can be done and explored about that now. Uh, back in you know our father's day, they always used to have the old rebore operation, right, to make all the tube open up again. That's often not necessary now. There are uh, pills that can help the urinary flow, and as long as the man's happy and the, the symptoms are well under control, that's all that might take. So that's benign prostate growth or enlargement, part of life. The one, I guess, that men fear most is the cancerous growth in the prostate. Uh, that's where uh, uh, an area uh, develops a, a cancer, uh, and that cancer uh, may be of a type that's quite aggressive. It can grow quickly. It can spread uh, beyond the prostate. It can spread into the pelvis or, or elsewhere. And that's, I think, you know, what's a, a great concern to many men. One of the things we know now about prostate cancer is they're not all the same in the way they behave. Some of them are quite uh, slowly growing, sort of uh, indolent. They kind of grumble along and may eventually actually cause no problem to the man. Uh, on the other hand, there are sorts of cancers that, as I say, can be very aggressive and get people in all sorts of strife at an early age. So uh, I'm sure your, your listeners will all have had experiences with different types and grades of prostate cancer and the discussions that flow from that are, uh, you know, what should you do, if anything? Um, should you just watch and see what happens or should you operations or, or uh, radiation therapy, all sorts of options? It's a very big area. And I'm sure that many of your listeners will have issues that they want to raise there that have affected them or somebody they know. Um, I guess uh, one question we often think is, you know, who particularly should, you know, ought to be aware of this possibility? And family history of prostate cancer is probably the most important thing to know about about your own situation. So you know, if your brother or uncle or dad have had it, then you are at an increased risk. And I think in terms of discussions you might have with your doctor, you, that, that needs to be something that, that you, you bear in mind. And the third thing uh, about the prostate that can go awry uh, is it can become inflamed. They get prostatitis or inflammation of the prostate, which can cause uh, uh, lower abdominal pain and symptoms and uh, fever and be, you know, be, be again, a very uh, you know, unpleasant uh, condition inflammation and enlargement aren't the same thing? No, they're not. And uh, I guess that's, coming back to the cancer and the benign growth, they're not the same thing. People often get confused that 
uh, an enlarged prostate, which I said is inevitable as you get older, is like prostate cancer. They're independent things. They're different. And, you know, they, you need to think of them quite, quite separately. Same gland, different disease, different set of problems. And the same with prostatitis. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're what the prostate can do, you know, to make our life, uh, you know, problematic. Uh, and, uh, of course, I mentioned its location before um, at the base of the bladder around the around the, the, the urinary tube so you can imagine that uh, surgery or other sorts of treatments you might give directly to the prostate could uh, be troubled by that location it's a difficult area to get to and also the little nerves that are part of the erection mechanism travel through the outer layer of the prostate on their way to the penis so again you could imagine that if you have operations that cut through the external capsule of, of the prostate, uh, you know, you can cause erection problems. So uh, you'll see, you know, obviously, in the, in the cancer area, lots of discussion about uh, treatment side effects, uh, such as urinary continence or erectile dysfunction as a consequence of treatment. So it's a very, very complicated area and really it has to be considered on a man-by-man -man basis. You know, a comment that somebody might make may have no relevance to your own situation because you're different. So these are very personalised, you know, uh, conversations you have with your doctor and your your urologist, who in fact will be doing uh, uh, giving most of these consultations to you, because we're, we're all our situations are all a little bit different. Rob, everything you've talked about so far has been fairly anatomical. Just a word on the psychological. Mm. It's like this little thing came from Satan himself. First of all, you access it through the backside. Secondarily. If it plays up on you, it affects either your ability to pee or your ability to get a boner. Yes. Thirdly, if it goes badly wrong, it can take your life. And I don't know what sort of circles other people mix in, but in the circles I mix in, guys don't love sitting around talking about their doodles. Yeah, you know, you're right, Aaron. It's a pretty tedious little discussion to have, you know, it's... It, it seems the location uh, and the problems that flow from the, the diseases could really get into your head. And, uh, I, you know, that, that is certainly the case, uh, particularly for men with, uh, with prostate cancer and the concerns they have, not just about the disease that they have and what that might mean, uh, but also about their sexuality, their relationships. Uh, will they, will they or won't they uh, have trouble with urination or with erections after treatments? Uh, and, you know, in some of the men uh, who have the more aggressive forms that have gone beyond the prostate, uh, it's necessary to lower the testosterone level in their blood to a very low level to stop the tumour from growing. This is not a common situation, but it can certainly occur. And that has all the problems of a, basically a zero testosterone in terms of energy and muscle and, uh, and so on. So, you know, it, there can be a lot of really in-your-head type issues that arise from this and uh, the doctor and the partner of the man uh, and the man himself have to try and work their way through these. You know, to come back, it's not always that. I mean, benign overgrowth is not going to nearly cause that amount of issues. It's that un unfortunate minority that have the aggressive sorts of, of prostate cancer uh, that require those interventions they're the ones who are particularly, I think, at risk of, of the psychological side effects uh, and, and trauma uh, that such a sensitive uh, topic will, will bring up. Absolutely. This thing can be a terrorist, and so we want to be alert but not alarmed, informed but not fearful. And so over coming episodes, we will continue to draw on the expertise of Rob, but we will also drill down, <laughs> pun intended, with some <laughs> other experts in this field. Professor Rob McLaughlin from Healthy Male, formerly Andrology Australia, our valued Australian Men's Shed Association partners. Thanks for being the doc that we ask. My pleasure always. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. 
big thanks to both Aaron Carney, OAM, who's a director on the Australians Men's Shed Association, and Professor Rob McLaughlin from Healthy Male. And by the way, there are two more editions of Ask the Doc on the Prostate that follow on from that conversation. You can find those in the back catalogue of the Shed Wireless. They include lots more information about advances in prostate cancer and treatment options. You'll find all our past episodes online wherever you get our podcasts or scroll through the list of menshed.org forward slash the Shed Wireless. And don't forget, if you have a good topic in mind, just send me an email. You can write to me at theshedwireless at themenshed.net. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with my good friend, John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders across Australia and around the world. Get ready to shed. Yeah, there's something for you at the men's shed. There seems to be a resident funny guy in just about every shed and workplace. Only one. Sometimes they just think they're funny and the rest of us just humour them. But even those guys can make you crack a smile and a laugh every now and again. Sort of like my friend Rip Woodchip, who's back with a few more of his frank and fearless observations. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it with Rip Woodchip. G'day, Shadows, Rip Woodchip here. How are you all going today? I'm just sitting out in the back waiting for the missus to come and give me a haircut. Mind you, it shouldn't take her too long. Not much left on top anymore. Basically, it's a matter of running the clippers over what's left and patting me bald spot. I used to have a pretty good crop growing up there, but as I get older, seems like it stopped growing on me noggin and started growing everywhere else. I have hair coming out of just about every other orifice of me body. I first noticed I was getting a little bit thin on top when I was standing in line at the bank and I had one of them security cameras behind me and I could see the screen in front of me and I thought, who's that poor bastard with a slice of Devon on his head? And when I turned around, I was the only one in the line. So then I started to worry. I was too young and handsome to be going bald. I mean, I'd had a pretty good run, but how long did I have? And what was I going to look like with a nude nugget? Was I going to be ugly with a chrome dome? Would the missus still want to be seen with me in public if I looked like a roll-on deodorant? I started getting self-conscious. I started wearing my hat a little more. And every time I looked in the mirror, I reckon I could see my forehead growing. You know, a receding hairline isn't a group of rabbits hopping backwards. But then I started to think about it. There's plenty of blokes out there that don't have a skerrick on their scones. And crikey, I had mates who went bald in their 20s and no one thought any different of it. And come to think of it, if they had hair now, they'd look ridiculous. So then I thought to myself, what's the point in worrying and living in denial? I figure the less hair I have on my head, the more opportunity for people to focus on me ridiculously good looks. And I think of me bald spot as a solar panel for a sex machine. And the sun's been shining, just let me tell you quietly. Grow old with dignity. Accept the things you can't change and don't fight a battle you can't win. As long as you've got your good health and a hat, you don't need hair. Anyway, fellas, here comes the barber. Number one all over, love. And don't forget to do around the ears properly this time. You always forget me bloody ears. See you, fellas. Thank you, Rip. And by the way, in the next episode of the Shed Wireless Ask the Doc, we'll be focusing on just that, male hair loss. I've got plenty of it. The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association across Australia and around the world. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. On the last episode, our shedder in the spotlight was Gavin Murray from Mount Perry in Queensland. You might remember he told us all about restoring an old Melbourne tram, among other things. And when I realised that Gavin worked in IT, I thought it might be useful to sap his expert knowledge for some tips for those of us who aren't too savvy when it comes to computers and the like. Pick me. Because let's face it, you can't be good at everything, right? Hey, how you doing, Gavin? Are you all right? I'm good, thanks, John. Yeah, that's good. Now, like I said in the last one, I don't think there'll be too many experts, IT experts uh, in our sheds, but um, you are one, and and that's a, a wonderful addition that you know that must be really appreciated up in your shed. Um, 
What are the some general tips that I can give out to some shedders out there when it comes to uh, the old IT? Well, we, we find that uh, certainly in the shed, and we talk about this a little bit in the shed, that um, technology can be difficult for older men and women, and uh, we talk about it a little bit. And I, I've sort of spoken about a few tips that I think are quite useful. I think the first one is is a little bit of a mental attitude thing, and and the way I would put that is to stop stop telling people that you're a technophobe or a computard, as they sometimes call it. A luddite. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> if you tell, I think if you tell people that that's what you are, then that's what you expect to be, and that's what you become, and and. It's like anything. If you if you've got a positive attitude towards it, then I think it really helps you get in the yep. right mindset to learn something new. Yeah. Okay. So, and the second tip is, um, don't view all tech as being all difficult. You don't have to be a computer programmer to be able to use a smartphone. Uh, and to give you an example, my partner's um, mother, she's eighty six years old. And she lives some distance from family. She decided that she wanted to keep in touch more. And she went and bought herself a smartphone. Not an easy thing to do for, for an elderly lady. Um, but she spent a month uh, teaching herself and getting help when she needed it. She can now quite happily send and receive text messages, photographs. She can scan into the COVID QR codes. She can even FaceTime and we can talk to her on FaceTime. And that's quite an achievement for a, for a woman of that age. And she did that one piece at a time. She decided each week she was going to learn something new. And the first week it was how to send a text message. The second week was how to how to take a photograph and send that. So it can be done. And it's just a case of one bite at a time. The old story of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that I found difficult uh, – trying to master it, I mean, I still haven't, uh, a, a smartphone and things like that, is is when something goes wrong uh, and it only just happened to me again today and I went through all these things and I go through all these things trying to work it all out and then I then I remembered the, the number one rule, turn the damn thing on, off and then turn it back on again. Yeah, that's that's And, of the course, fa- that worked. Favourite saying of the IT support people is, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? And while that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you'd be surprised at how many times that works. Turn it off, turn it back on again. And that's generally something that's not your fault. It's not necessarily something that you caused. It could be just a little glitch in the device or in the software. So turning it off and turning it back on again is a good place to start. Yeah, it seems to be a, a, a common uh, problem is, is when you're uh, connecting and disconnecting from a vehicle, for example, uh, sometimes... You know, things get turned off that you're not un- unaware of. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And and often turning it, turning the device off and turning it back on again can reset it and put it into a state that uh, that's going to work for you. Well, that's fabulous, Gavin. Thank you so very much, and I'm sure that those little tips will help. Do you think we've been let down by our younger folk who didn't teach us properly? Oh, I think more often than not, it's because we don't ask. If we ask someone to show us how to do something and then maybe practice that one skill and go back to the person and say, look, I've mastered that now. Can you show me how to do this? Uh, I think that's helpful. Yeah, okay. I, I kind of found that I'd, I'd be shown something at uh, warp speed and uh, and then the uh, the child would disappear. Yeah, that's a problem <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gavin, thank you once again. Uh, you've been a great help and, uh, and good luck with the W-Class tram that you're uh, uh, restoring up there in Queensland and uh, – Say good day to uh, everybody in Mount Perry for us. Great. Thanks very much, John. Thank you, Gavin. Bye-bye. Bye. Now it's time to talk fishing with Butch. Well, here on the Shed Wireless, it's time to talk fishing once again, and we're going to talk to Butch. How are you doing? Oh, I'm going well, thanks, John. I thought today we'd talk about the importance of observation when it comes to finding fish, because let's face it, if you go fishing, you want to catch something, and the only way you can catch something is actually find the fish. So there are a couple of key points in that regard because once I, I used to read Sherlock Holmes back in the day, John, or years and years ago, and one of the things that I learned from Sherlock Holmes was that he once said to Watson, my dear Watson, you see, but you do not observe. 
And I think that's the critical critical phrase, you do not observe. Because people see seagulls, for example, seagulls, right? That's first giveaway for fishing normally, right? So you go out, see a bunch of seagulls sitting around, you wander over there and think, oh, they'd be on fish. But a lot of the time, being the scavengers that they are, they're just sitting on some flotsam that's, you know, in a, in a bit of a current line, and that's just doesn't signify fish at all. So now once those seagulls suddenly take off and head in one direction quickly, that's when you follow them because then if one of them has sighted some surface action and you go chase it. And when you get there, if these seagulls are diving and swooping down and, you know, there's a bit of splashing and going on, you know that there's bait fish there and that they're um, trying to pick, you know, get the pickings off the um, predators that are leaving a bit of bait floating around. So Yeah, that's your observation thing. You're looking for the birds to be active, not just hanging about. That's exactly right. So there's various behaviours of seagulls. That's one of them. There was another one that came to mind recently. I, I saw about 20 seagulls around a yacht that was moored in the harbour and we'd been, we'd been out fishing all day in a boat, coming back to the ramp. I noticed these seagulls around this yacht. Now, I said to my mate, look, slow down and see what these are up to. He said, no, nah, it's not worth it. They're probably, you know, feed, somebody's feeding them. And I said, no, 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 there's no tender tied up to the back of the yacht, so there's no one on board. He said, oh, yeah, so you noticed that? I said, yeah. So I said, look, it, that was, it, it was quite interesting that I, it, I twigged, you know. So I thought, let's throw a lure right up alongside the edge of the boat. And we both did. And he, he caught a salmon straight away and I caught a kingfish. Now, what that meant was that the bait fish that were hiding in that area were actually up against the hull of this yacht and against the keel, which is quite big on a yacht, and they're hiding there from the predators. So the seagulls, they're waiting for the predators to come up and hit these, hit the bait fish every now and then. It was just that we, I noticed, and off we went. We got a few, the only fish we caught that day. So that goes to the behaviour of seagulls. Now, the other the other telltale bird is the is the tern, of course. Yeah, yeah, the whole one tern deserves another job. Well, the thing with terns is they are fantastic indicator of bait fish because they only feed on bait, on small fish. They're not like seagulls that, you know, they're scavengers. So if you see a tern, which is like a seagull with a black head, if they're diving down, you can bet that there's bait fish near the surface. And the more they dive, the more the bait fish is there. And if you hang around long enough, uh, the predators might come up underneath and, and, and cause a bit of a disturbance on the surface. Now, some of the disturbances... Most people won't even notice, but a lot of them, like salmon and kingfish, they don't actually splash on the surface like a tailor. They will just sort of make a swirl. And unless you're tuned in, you might notice the swirl, but if, if it's a decent-sized kingfish, it'll make a decent swirl and a bit of a royal, and then you throw your lure in there. So turns are a really good indication. Another indicator I like is, in the way of birds, is the old shag or the cormorant. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's two Basically, one's a big one with a white face. Uh, that one's not a good indicator of bait fish because they tend to swim near the bottom, picking up small um, brim, uh, snapper, whiting, leather jackets, all that sort of stuff. Whereas the little black ones, the sleek, really sleek black ones, hunt in pairs or groups, and you can see them sort of herding bait fish around, and that's all they feed on. So there's a good indicator of bait fish. So they're the most amazing swimmer underwater. Unbelievable. Almost as good as penguins. Penguins are another good indicator of um, a bait fish too. I've had penguins actually swim around my feet while I've been wading up knee deep in Rose Bay. They're the birds. Now, a funny thing happened the other day as an indicator again. It doesn't have to be birds. I was paddling around and a couple of guys paddled up to me and said, oh, keep an eye out for that seal. I said, what seal? He said, there's a seal swimming around. I said, oh, well, okay, I'll keep an eye because, as you know, John, they these, these seals come up and steal your fish off your line if they get a chance. So I was a bit wary. But in the distance, there was a bit of a you know, splashing and the seagulls were hanging around. So um, I thought I'll paddle over there. It might be a bit of surface action. But what it was, it was the actual seal. And as you know, you've seen this before too, that they pick up fish they can't swallow properly. They fling it around backwards and forwards and break pieces off. Now, what happened then was, of course, the seagulls are swooping down, picking up the bits and pieces that have come off. So once a seal left, I thought, ah, here's my chance. There's um, bits and pieces falling off, so therefore there's a natural burly trail falling down that, that the seagulls haven't picked up. I went over there and put a, a soft plastic on, lightly weighted, 
and just let it drift to the bottom and got a flounder straight away, first cast. You made your own luck. You made your own luck there for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they're the, they're the basic hints. Just keep an eye out on, on what the birds are doing, basically more than, you know, there's birds there, so what, you know. Um, you know, birds outside like, you know, mutton birds are cruising up and down all the time. They're, they're not necessarily a giveaway either. They move from south to north and back again every year. It's only if they're diving and splashing around that they're an indicator. When you're at the, on the coast and you're, and you're looking at the, the surf, now what are the indicators there when you're looking at the water? Beach fishing is all about um, distinguishing where the gutters are. That's where the fish congregate. Now, gutter, um, usually you find the gutters at low tide where you can, where you can see a gutter is sort of a, a darker patch of water, usually runs parallel to the beach and... The surf breaks out from the beach, then it dissipates and then into the gutter and then there's a beach break. So in between there and there is where you target your fishing. So what often happens is people cast way out as far as they can beach fishing, whereas the fish could be almost right at their feet. And there's an old saying, fish fish your feet first and then work your way out. Because the whiting and the brim in the surf can be riding close to shore where the waves are just, you know, breaking over that sandbar and disturbing the disturbing the sand and exposing worms and yabbies and stuff like that. All right, well, thanks very much for that one, Butch. Uh, next time, I believe we're going to talk about what you can do when you're out on the road for all of you grey nomads out there, something to maybe um, supplement your diet while you're out there. Yep, that's a good idea. I've, I've got that topic wrapped up too, mate, so we'll talk again when, whenever. Beautiful. Thanks very much, Butch. That's okay. That's about it for now, but I'm really keen to hear from you about any of the topics in this episode, especially 3D printing. So make sure you drop me an email if you can. You'll catch me at theshedwireless at menshed.net. And you can check out The Shed online too for a few extra bits and pieces. Until we meet again, shoulder to shoulder, well, virtually in this instance, look after yourself, stay COVID-free and stay connected to your mates. I'll catch you soon here on The Shed Wireless. Whatever is your game, everyone's the same Yeah, we can do it all at the men's shed Short, fat, tall, skinny, hairy, bald In the shed, it's welcome one and all Share the skills you know, we're all having a go There's a helping hand in the men's shed Yeah, the sun.